We'll turn now in God's word to Judges 6 and 7. Uh, for those new, it's in the, the Pew Bible. If you pull that out, it's page 247. I like this song, Bernard. Who on earth wrote that thing? I, I wonder who. It's, a, it's an unknown. It's an, but known to me. The man to my left wrote this. Bernard, we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful. And the message is so true. Keep writing. Well, uh, it's always hard to know what to preach about on Father's Day. But I spoke about a, a particular story in the Bible to a group of men last fall, and they told me I needed to do it in church. So I, I was guided by them. And then there's this movie clip that's always on my mind for days like this. It, it comes out of the movie Shrek when Donkey wants to go over to Shrek's house. Do you know that? Well, we, we pulled up just a snippet. See if you can hear it here. Be fun. We can stay up late, swapping manly stories, and in the morning, I'm making waffles. Oh! <laughs> I, I don't know if you got that. He said, we're going to stay up late and tell manly stories, and then tomorrow we'll have waffles. So here's what I thought I'd do. I thought on Father's Day it would be a good thing to tell a manly story. And then when you leave here, you can have um, waffles or whatever fathers, whatever we eat. And I'll tell you, it's one of the best stories, not just in the Bible, but in all of literature. And so it's in Judges chapter 6 and 7. Let us stand, remembering that what we are hearing today is uh, from, from, from our, the maker of the heavens and earth, and the one who through faith in Jesus becomes our heavenly father. Hear the word of God. Judges 6.1. Again. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. Now, who will this prophet be? Verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us. Why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and you save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord... Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Well, Gideon's not so sure about this, though the Lord has told him this, so he puts a test before the Lord, which the Lord does. And then he sends him to do something with his family. His father was a pagan priest, which he does. 
And then he seems to have the courage to obey the Lord. He blows trump, but he's still afraid. So more tests, some fleece he puts out, we'll be looking at, until eventually 32,000 men have been gathered together from Israel to fight against the Midianites. And that brings us to chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water. And I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Uh, 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths and all the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with these 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go. And so we have this this great, great story in which uh, you have the enemy in the valley and just these 300 around them. And read in verse 19. Gideon and the 100 men, they were in three battalions, and the 100 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grabbing the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! While each man held his position around the camp, All the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And the army fled. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. That's worthy of some applause. It is Father's Day. And as I wrote in the worship folder, uh, it's what we preachers sometimes call hallmark card days. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, these are days that you don't find in the church calendar. Uh, they're days, you know, like, like Mother's Day and Valentine's Day and, and Father's Day, and I'm sure there are a few others, that we know are important, but they're not quite like Christmas or, or Easter or, or a day like that. And yet I know as a pastor that when you come, that we should not ignore it because fathering is important. And so I'm not going to ignore it. But there are challenges in this. The video that we saw at the beginning of the service just highlight a few of those. Uh, For some, for example, we know we are supposed to honor our fathers. But you know in a church as big as Lake Avenue Church, there are a lot of people here who have not had good examples in their homes of good fathering. So we find it hard to engage in that kind of of honoring. There are also many men in our church who, for one reason or another, cannot be and perhaps will not be fathers. It makes today a a bit of an awkward day. 
Also, I'm sure you know that we have a lot of people who in the past year, even in, in more recent days, have lost their fathers, making this day a particularly challenging day for a lot of people who come to church. And then, too, of course, in, in the state of California right now, with the Supreme Court decision, uh, redefining marriage so different from the way really most of the people in the history of the world and all around the globe have looked at a marriage as, as between a husband and a wife. Since that's being changed, that changes really uh, has impact upon our whole idea, not only of marriage, but of family and ultimately even of fathering. So as I thought about this, I thought, what do I talk about? What do I talk about? The thing that I've chosen to talk about is this, that all of us know that fathering is a high calling. Those of you who are here, do you remember that fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother, I talked about. And the word for honor means weight or significance. The point is that the role of fathering in the world is a weighty one. It's a, it's a very significant one. And whether our fathers have done it well or not, what has happened there has had a significant, a weighty impact upon their lives. Isn't that true? Uh, and so the, the calling is a very high one. And quite frankly, many of us who have had that calling upon us to be fathers don't always feel capable for the task, do we? I mean, we know our own frailties. We look in the mirror and we see ourselves and we say, how on earth can I pass on good and positive things to my children, which will have a, an impact in my family, not only there, but really in our community and in the entire world. So that's what I want to talk about, stepping up to the plate to this high calling. And I thought, if you're with me, that this should have a message not only for fathers, but for all of us. Because the truth is, God calls each one of us often the things that we don't really feel up to. We, haven't you ever had a time where you sense this is something God would have me do? But then we feel like we don't really have the, the strength or ability to do it. Where do we find it? Where do we find it? If, there, if there's some call upon that you, that you know that God would have you to engage in, where will you find the strength? And that has brought me to this story in the book of Judges and to this one particular man. Did you notice where we meet him? Chapter 6, in case you missed it, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, we meet this man named Gideon in an unusual place. Now, this was meant to be funny, but in Southern California in the 21st century, people don't even understand what's going on. But let's look at it again. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. No laughter. I, I just knew this 11 o'clock service. We would, the whole point, I'm guessing, I'm just guessing, it's because we have very few wheat threshers here in, in church this morning. It's not something that we do a lot. But let me just tell you about it. This was in the great story that's being told here by this Jewish storyteller in the book of Judges. It was meant to catch our attention. You see, wheat was not to be threshed in a wine press. What they would do with wheat was they would throw it up in the um, air and, and there would be chaff that was there and, and it would have to be in an open place. The wind would blow through. It would carry the chaff away. The wheat would fall down to the ground and then it would become useful. A wine press was a sort of a hollow that was carved out usually in a wall or stone all around it. It's a place where wind could not blow through. It's the world's worst place for threshing wheat. 
What on earth was Gideon doing threshing wheat in a wine press? That should be what you have asked when I read that text to you. And the answer is he was there because he was a coward. That's why. It's a point that's being driven home. And the reality is these Midianites who were there were the people he was afraid of. Midianites had taken over his home area. And what, they were sort of like in an Indiana Jones movie. They were sort of like uh, marauders, nomadic marauders who would come sweeping through a village and just destroy everything. And that's what they had done among the people of Israel. In fact, if you look at Judges chapter 8, Gideon had lost a couple of his brothers in one of those uh, raids that had happened. So I'll tell you, if he had to be out there, if his father had told him, get out there and thresh some wheat, he was not going to do it out in the open. There's no way he was going to do that because he was a, a timid, cowardly sort. And that's why that phrase, I think it's in verse 14, when the angel of the Lord comes and turns to him and says, Ho, mighty warrior, I can almost imagine Gideon thinking, Who else is with me in this wine? There must be somebody else here because surely I am not that. Uh, He would never have conceived of him in that way. And that's what led to this response in verse 15. Me? You can't talk about me being a mighty warrior. Nor can you talk about me being the one through whom you're going to rescue a whole nation. Don't you know I come from the smallest tribe? And not only that, my particular clan within that tribe is the weakest and the smallest clan. And if you had noticed, I'm the weakest member of this clan in this weak tribe. <laughs> so I'm not the one. I'm not the one that you want to do this. But the message that I want to drive home on this, my first Father's Day among you, is putting together a couple of phrases that God gave to Gideon. And that my prayer is that they'll transcend all of these years and come home to us here today. For fathers, but really for all of us who are here, putting it together, and I put them up on the screen so that you can see them. First, Gideon, go in the strength that you have. It may feel like there's not much, but what you have I've given you. Go in the strength you have. Am I not the one sending you? And then this promise. I will be with you. To me, it is the exciting lesson of the life of Gideon, of this manly story. And really, those of you who know the whole Bible, you know this is really the message of the entirety of the Scriptures. Namely this, that God chooses to use unexpected people, often people who are in the eyes of the world, weak and unlikely, to do His greatest work. Because as far as God is concerned, uh, He is not as concerned about ability as he is about humility. Again, let me say it. In the eyes of God, humility is far more important than ability. That makes sense when you understand the God of the Bible, doesn't it? God is revealed to us in the Bible as the maker of heaven and earth. Uh, He is omnipotent. You know that word, don't you? All-powerful. And you know, therefore... That a lack of strength is no problem for someone who's omnipotent. He can deal with that. So if you feel weak, he can handle that. The one thing that I read about throughout scriptures that God does not deal with well in the lives of us as people is pride, self-reliance, self-centeredness. So today, if you've come here to the Lake Avenue Church and you know there's something God would have you to do and you don't feel like you have the strength to do it, you may be in the best place imaginable. 
Maybe in the best place imaginable. Because almost always God is not the one who chooses the most likely people, the one with the biggest education, the one that everybody would look at and say, well, of course, he or she could do that because look at who those people are. God chooses these such unlikely people, gives himself to us, and does great, great work through us. Now, the question that I had as I read Gideon is how on earth did he move from that wine press into a place where he led his entire nation to victory? And what I see is sort of a process that happens. A couple of smaller battles that he had to face. And maybe these will also be the kinds of things you and I have to do to get to the place where God can use us. What kind of battles am I talking about? Number one, I called it the battle at home. The battle at home. Or at least sometimes there are places among those closest to us. Family members, friends, people that you're worth every day at work where we have to be willing to take a stand there before we do some of the bigger things. Look at verse 25. For people who didn't grow up in a Christian home, this may be a very unexpected verse for you. That same night, what happened was after uh, Gideon had been told, you're going to lead the nation, he had so many doubts that he tested God and God did it. So after God said, listen, I'm with you. That same night, the Lord said to Gideon, Take that second bull from your father's herd, you know, the one that's seven years old. Then tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Now, the reason why I say this is surprising to some people is it becomes clear that, that Gideon did not come from a godly home. His father, Joash, almost certainly was a leader in a pagan religion. The worship of Baal right there in their backyard is where the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole that they worshiped was was located. Uh, The point is that most who think, well, of course, if I'd grown up in a Christian home, then God could use me. Listen, if you haven't, God still can use you. And but one of the things that that Gideon had to do was get over that fear of standing for God in his own family. So that there could be a consistency when he stands with God in the rest of the world. And I think there's a powerful lesson in this. Are you with me? I've often thought that many times our lives as individual Christians, and sometimes even even the life of of a church, is, is too much like a lighthouse. We know we're to be a light in the world. But you know what a lighthouse does, don't you? It casts light way out there. But often right around its base, it's still in darkness. Now, we are to be a lighthouse to the world out there, but the reality is there's to be a consistency. That, that real impact for God begins by being willing to be a light right there around our base. And often it has to start among those to whom we are closest, to our family members and to our friends. You know this is true, don't you? It's often easy when we have mission trips. It's easier to go and take a stand for Jesus Christ when you go down to Katrina or or you go to another country. Then you come right back and and it's rather hard, isn't it? Uh, I found out when I used to talk with university students that those who had come to Christ in the university often were able to be strong Christians when they were there with their other members of InterVarsity or Campus Crusade or Navigators. But then they'd go back home. They'd say, I feel like a schizophrenic. I just can't tell my friends and family members that I now belong to Jesus. Now, we can all understand this. There's something in our human psyche that makes it hard, partially because our friends and family members know us. They know know our imperfections, right? They they know our weaknesses. And and especially when it comes to our immediate family, 
There's something in the human psyche that resists it, especially when we try to take a stand for God among our parents, as Gideon had to do. After all, our parents are the ones who have brought us up. They're the ones that always said, you have to do this. And now we have to come back to them and say, you know, when it comes to these matters of God, I've learned something. I've found something that I think you need to embrace. I know why it's hard, but listen, I'm convinced that often the impact that God would have us to have in this world begins when we find that courage to take a stand for him among our closest friends and among our family members. And Gideon, as timid as he was, somehow found the courage to obey God. Though still, some of his cowardliness would be shining through. Look at verse 27. Can you imagine this? So Gideon, after, after hearing this, took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. You know it didn't take ten people to tear down that altar and that pole. But, but Gideon needed a little moral support, especially this next phrase. But because he was afraid of the family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. I tell you, he was one of these people that if he knew God would have him to give witness to some of his friends, he would find some way to send an anonymous email or an anonymous text message to the friend. But one of the things I love is this. Even though he did it in a rather cowardly way, God is gracious and patient with us, isn't he? And he took as much of a step as he could take given that personality. And God used him. In fact, look at verses 30 and 31, and you'll see that his pagan father priest, when everybody else wanted to kill Gideon for tearing down the altar, his pagan father priest took a stand for his his own son and and may have even taken a step toward uh, Jehovah God. I I thought maybe he was just happy that this cowardly son at last had stepped out and done something. (laughs) Sometimes fathers, we feel like that. But it it seems to have a sense that there's more that happens. And it's so consistent with what I've seen. That when we take those small steps of faith to obey God, He anoints those. He anoints those. And often uses those as the first thing that He does to draw other people to Himself. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you should go and somehow in secret tear down or ruin all of your parents' stuff. I'm not saying that. Here is the point. Real courage, I think, begins when we stand for Christ among those to whom we are closest. You may have to think about that in your own life. I think that real courage that leads to us being used by God so often begins when we find the courage to take a stand for the Lord among those to whom we are closest. We need to find that courage to to say that to them, I've become a follower of Jesus now. And then, of course, our lives have to show that we really are. I mean, we've, we've got to follow that up by, by the quality of our lives. And I, I thought, too, that I'm guessing that there may be, in some of our lives, some of our own gods that have to be torn down. Websites that we go to, other things that have become priorities in our lives that we know don't honor the Lord. And my conviction is this, when we learn to take that first small step of faith, that we will see the presence and the provision of God. Which brings us to the second battle. I've called it the battle with self-doubt. You've got to remember this personality that we're dealing with. Remember this little man in the wine press, and look what happens in verse 33. Uh, Everything becomes different. 
Uh, It's not just that the Midianites became raiders. They went out and got a lot of other people and they were going to have an all out assault to absolutely destroy the nation of Israel. The nation through whom the Messiah was supposed to come. Look at verse 33. Now, all the Midianites and the Malachites and the other eastern peoples joined forces. They crossed over the Jordan. They camped in the valley of Jezreel. You can imagine the the people of Israel. They had no king. They had no army. They had nothing to hold them together. So they seemed absolutely hopeless and helpless. Then verse 34. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And he blew a trumpet. Summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. But not only them. He sent messengers through a number of other tribes. So that they too went up to meet them. And soon they had 32,000 soldiers. Ready to fight with him. I'll I'll tell you. When you read this story. The thought that should come to mind is this. How on earth did that happen? I, I can almost imagine Joash and the others saying. What happened with... What happened with Gideon? How did that cowardly little guy get out there and grab a trumpet and start running around the hillsides and, and, and try to get people to follow him? And not only did, did he try, they actually did it. What happened? And you see it. The key is in, that, in verse 34. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. So even this was not a matter mainly of human initiative. Though... though So Gideon had to blow his trumpet. It was still the power and the work of God. And I think there is, once again, something profound to be learned here. Uh, I often wonder about you. You know, my father became a believer when I was six years old. It it changed my family life, and sometimes it changed it more than I wanted it to. We became a little town in West Virginia. We went to church all the time, all the time. One time I complained about this. and I said, why don't we just put a hammock up at the church? (laughs) Because we're there more often than we are at home. Mostly I wanted to go to the football game when we had services at, at church. And so I was, I was complaining about that. But when I was at church, there was a phrase that I heard as a young man that just sometimes drew me crazy, drew, drove me crazy. And it was this. Do not operate, Greg, in your own strength. Have you ever heard that? It's a phrase we throw out in church. Don't just operate in your own strength. Operate in the power of God. I often thought, what does that mean? Does that mean I should just sort of stay in bed and God will sort of levitate me out and kind of take me to wherever? What is it? Don't operate in your own strength. Now, understood aright, I think there is truth to be gained from that phrase. But there is this very difficult thing of understanding how stepping out in obedience... And even in the strength that we have, as Gideon was told to step out with, the strength that God had given him is something that first takes place and then we see the power of God. You realize, don't you, that nothing was happening as long as Gideon was staying in that wine press. He had to get out there and and blow the trumpet. But when he took that first step of obedience, that's where God steps in and does tremendous power. So don't operate in your strength means whatever strength we have, we know it comes from God anyway. Every breath I breathe comes from God anyway. I give it to him. I take a first step of faith. And then we find that God gives himself to us and does great work in and through us. But I'll tell you, when God gives himself to us, it doesn't mean that he absolutely immediately changes every part of our personality. 
See, Gideon got out there and blew the trumpet, and soon he had all these thousands of soldiers around him, but he was still afraid. And it all comes out in verse 36 in this remarkable if clause. Gideon said to God, verse 36, If, God, if you really will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, God, this, this is what I need you to do. This is what I need you to do. And, and he, he gives him a test. Churchgoers, you know about Gideon's fleece, don't you? And that's what he, he does here. He says, well, I'll, put, I'll put some fleece outside the door. And tomorrow, if that fleece is wet and the ground around it is dry, then I'll know that you would have me do this. And God does it. And then he comes back again. Oh, don't be angry with me. Don't be angry with me. Verse 39. Let me make just one more request. One more test with this fleece. A little bit harder. This time make the fleece dry and the ground around it covered with dew. So God did it. You see, the point that I'm making is when we step out in faith and God gives himself to us, it doesn't mean that we suddenly turn into absolutely different people. There's still this work that has to happen. And I've written it this way. God doesn't eliminate our distinctive personalities when he gives himself to us. But he becomes an unfailing resource, though not a substitute personality. And that brings us to this matter of Gideon's fleece. Um, Those of you who don't go to church very often, you may not be aware of this. There are a lot of people who somehow have gotten the idea that this is how you figure out what God would have you to do. Kind of unsure about what God would have you to do, so you put God to the test in some way. You, you, I fleece. Some of us don't even know what a fleece is. You throw something outside, and if it's wet one day and dry the next, then, then we'll know what God would have us to do. That's how you find out the will of God. What do you think about that? Well, I don't think so. And I've written it down so that I won't get this wrong with you. Several principles I want you to get. I don't think this is the way of finding out what God would have us to do. Why? One. Because this is a -a one-of-a-kind event in the Bible. People are usually not guided in this way, even in the Old Testament. This was a time when the very existence of the people of God of Israel was at stake. The people through whom Messiah would be born, God would not let his people be destroyed. He's going to make sure that Gideon knew that he had to do this. That's the first thing. Second, it's an event before... Jesus came and before the Holy Spirit came, not just upon individual prophets, but upon all people. You know, that's something that is different now. All believers, when we receive Christ, are given the Holy Spirit of God. So since that happened, since the completion of Scripture, when you read the New Testament, you don't find things like fleece being thrown out there. Instead of of, when we try to figure out what God would have us to do. What he has given us is his word, that as we study it will guide us, this gift of prayer through the spirit of God's prompting, one another in the life of the church, sometimes to whom and through whom God gives prophetic messages that will help to direct us and guide us, the counsel of God's people. There are all sorts of ways now, usually not through fleece. And then third, and if you've missed the other two, mark this down. Even for Gideon, the point of the fleece was not to figure out the will of God, but simply to confirm what God had already told him to do. Uh, Look again at verse 36. If you will save Israel by my hands, as you have promised, 
Or, or in, in case you missed that, uh, it, it's, it's, it's uh, underscored in verse 37. Then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. <laughs> you, you see, he, he didn't know, need to know what God would have him to do. Gideon already knew that he was a weakling. So what is the lesson to be learned? When we come to God, we give our lives to him, and we begin taking these first steps of faith. Um, we, we have a sense that this is something God would have us do. We step forward, and yet we still have all of these self-doubts step in. We feel afraid. God will find some way to let us know that he is there. I've experienced this so many times in my life. Actually, even, even in coming here to Lake Avenue Church, you step into a task, it feels awfully big. Uh, the leading of, of, of a church, a 112-year-old congregational church in a community I've never lived in, and yet I and we together sensed God's call to this place, right? So we step into this together. And as we do, I believe we will see the power of God. And where we have doubts, and sometimes you will have doubts about this new pastor, the Lord will find some way, some way to confirm that he is in it. That is the lesson of the fleece. Uh, when you know that God would have you to do something, God will find a way to confirm it. And often it's in a very private way, private way. Sometimes it will be somebody coming up and speaking to you uh, that you hadn't expected. Sometimes it will be a sermon. You'll come to church and the sermon will be as if it's directed specifically, specifically toward you. And you will know that God is saying what I told you to do. I'm just reaffirming it. It's from me. Because even look at that fleece. I mean, it was a small thing, wasn't it? I mean, if, if you had a neighbor who put a mat outside of his or her house one day, and one day it was wet and the next day it was dry, would you say, wow, what a great miracle. Uh, God's going to do something great. I mean, if he makes that mat wet one day and dry the next, oh, no, 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 no. This was a small thing that God did for Gideon. It's not the way to find out the will of God. But I've still, you know, I've dealt with this so often, I still have people say, well, Gideon got a fleece, I want one too. So here, I'll just, I wrote this out for you. As your pastor, if you insist upon fleeces, let the issue be such an important one. Let the fleece that you ask of God be a very modest one. And always let the purpose be to confirm guidance you've already begun to obey, not the actual deciding factor. Well, I'll just let you chew on that, see what God may say to you. But all I have to say is this. There was a second area. Where Gideon had to have some battles. That was his own self-doubts. And God found a way to provide. Which brings him, and our time is about gone, so I'll just go quickly, to the battle with the real enemy. The thing that God had called him to do. And what, what a great story. Look at chapter 7, verse 2 again. The Lord said to Gideon, Gideon, you have too many men. I can just hear Gideon say, too many men. I've been blowing my brains out getting these 32,000 people, and it's still four to one. They have 130 plus thousand. Too many men. But God says, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people. This is so countercultural. We Americans always think bigger is better. Even bigger churches must be more blessing from the Lord. But God cuts against that again and again and again. He often takes very small things in which to do his great, great work. And in fact, sometimes God will send us through great difficulties so that we will know that he is the one who has to do the work. 
See, for us, when we have human strategies, we have a battle. We're always wondering, will we win? But for God, that's never the issue, right? God always knows who's going to win. He, he knows what's going to happen. For God, the real issue is what's going to happen in our lives. And if giving us an immediate victory, pulling us out of the difficulty quickly, will make us self-centered, self-reliant, he may let us go through some really tough times for a while until we learn to just fall upon him and say, Father, what would you have me to do? I, I think we've experienced that as a congregation as a whole. Don't you? And so we have this case here. Gideon, we have too many men. So poor Gideon has to say, what should I do? Well, God says, start by getting rid of all the cowards. No, not you, Gideon. I can Remember, we already dealt with that one. So 22,000 men left. How many would leave here? I wonder. 22,000 men. So Gideon was left with 10,000 brave men and one coward. That, that's, what he, <laughs> that's what he had left. And then God turns and says, well, now that's way too many men, too. What are the odds now? About 30 to 1? Oh, no, no, that, you have way too many. We have to have a more rigorous selection. So send them down to the river. And as hard as this, this is to imagine, he says, just watch how they drink. Uh, those who sort of get the water up and then lap, lap the water out of the hands like a dog and, and sort that out from the others who get down and just drink in the normal way. And only 300 do it in that silly way of, of lapping like a dog. He said, okay, those will be the 300 who are going to do it. So what is he left with? He's left with 300 brave but very weird men. <laughs> <laughs> That really is all he's left with. And with these three broken into three different battalions, God demonstrates his presence. He overcomes Midian and all of their allies. And God's people are rescued. Uh, we don't have time to go over the story, but I'm just telling you, it's such great stuff. Uh, man, I, I love adventure and thriller stories, but this is as good as anything. You've, this is as good as Indiana Jones. This is as good as Iron Man. This is better than ta- Tom Clancy thrillers. Just, just mark it down. It, it has night raids and reconnaissance missions into the enemy camp and clever bluffs to outwit them. And eventually you have these 100,000 plus men down there in the valley and around them three battalions broke into 100 men apiece around them, and they're, they're there by the strategy that God gave them with a, a jar, clay jar probably, a, a torch or a light inside of it, and a trumpet in the right hand. And in, in the night, uh, at just the right moment, well, I read it to you earlier, so you know, they smash those jars, the lights come out, they blow the trumpets, and, and, and seeing and hearing all of this, the Midianites think that they are just being assaulted by an enormous army and they flee from that place not, not to return. But I think the key, though we can't really look at it too carefully, is in what they were to shout in verse 20. Do you see it? A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And, and just the order of that is so important. This was not going to be a victory that the 300 men were to be proud of. It was not primarily even going to be Gideon's victory, though he's mentioned here because God works through people. See? But ultimately, this is a victory for the Lord, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. God has done the work. He has done it through a very unlikely person. And I'm telling you, isn't it true 
that the greatest joy in life as a Christian is when you've come through a very difficult time in your life and at the end of that you look back and know that God was there. Sometimes when we're in the midst of those struggles, it would be good if we could learn to wait upon the Lord and trust Him and obey Him. But when we've walked through and we look back, we just give praise to God because we know that He has provided. And I think that is the simple lesson of this manly story about Gideon. And I've delivered it because fathers who are here, I I know that sometimes we feel inadequate for the task because we look in the mirror and we see ourselves. Perhaps at our own families we haven't had really good examples and now God has appointed us to these roles. And I just want to tell you, when he calls you to a place, he doesn't leave you alone. When he calls you to a place, he doesn't leave you alone. A couple of quotes, one of them from Pastor Albert Tate. He says it wasn't original to him, but I hadn't heard it before. I like it. Uh, God doesn't usually call the qualified. He qualifies the call. He doesn't always call those who think I'm qualified to do this. So, of course, I'll be able to. No, God calls people like Gideon in and then he qualifies the call. Then I put Pastor Albert in juxtaposition with St. Augustine. (laughs) One of my favorite prayers of the history of the church. It's really mine so often. Lord, ask of me whatever you will. But when you ask, you must give what you ask. Lord, ask of me whatever you will, but then you must give what you ask. You know, I've thought about single parents who are here in the life of our church, who often feel so alone in this parenting task. Today on Father's Day, I've thought about single moms who often say, how can I raise a child, perhaps particularly a son? I feel so alone. I want to tell you God's given us to one another and I hope that though we're a big church that we can learn more and more to be a family to one another. But even if we don't learn that lesson very well, I want you to know today you are not alone. God has put you in that place where you are and when he has called you to that place, he will give you what you need to fulfill that task. This is the lesson of the story of Gideon. God God may have a battle for you to to wage among those closest to you. You've got to take a stand for God at home or among friends. It may start there or at work. It may be that you'll continue to have these self-doubts because you know yourself. But God will turn to you and he says, I have called you and you will not be alone. So I'm going to close with those three phrases again. I want you to think about whatever God may be calling you to be or to do on this particular Father's Day 2008. And as you leave this worship center, I want you to hear the Lord saying this to you. Go in the strength that you have. Know that even that strength is given by God. So go with whatever God has given you. Am I not sending you? And then this promise, I am, the great I am, with you, to his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as each Sunday, I pray again that I've been faithful to your word. 
And now I pray, Father, that you would use the teaching of your word to do your work in our hearts. Father, for the calls that we have upon us, remind us that they are from you. Then send us from this place simply ready to obey as best we can, given what you've entrusted to us. Father, for some who may have come here today who don't even know you and are sensing your call to trust Jesus today, may this be the day that they have the courage to take that step forward so that they may know you. And for the rest of us, Father, for whatever you would have us to do or to be, help us again to hear your call upon us, to know your presence and your power so that we may live to your glory. In Jesus' name.